And welcome to the latest episode of the Changemakers LA podcast presented by Lisk LA. The Changemakers LA podcast is a tribute to the people and the policies that make LA neighborhoods good places to live, work, and play. My name is Wendy Gomez. I'm a program officer overseeing the Alternatives to Incarceration Incubation Academy. The Incubation Academy is a capacity building program for small grassroots re-entry organizations serving justice-impacted people across Los Angeles County. Um, on today's episode, we're going to talk to one of our guests about why community-based services are so critical in the re-entry space and in reimagining a justice system that is focused on care first. So joining us today, we have Danielle Lafayette. She is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called Unite a Nation. Uh, we are so lucky to have you, Danielle. Um, Danielle is providing critical services to the community that include housing, economic stability, uh, justice, and healing. Um, and it has also been an advocate in reforming the landscape of, um, of criminal justice and justice and care in Los Angeles. So welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you, Wendy. I'm really happy to be here, really excited about this opportunity. So before we get into kind of our conversation with Danielle, um, I want to level set us a bit. And so we're going to start off talking about kind of why community-based services are so important to begin with and what advocacy around alternatives to incarceration and a care-first approach have looked like in Los Angeles. So first off, before we dive in, uh, I want to outline a few of the ways that prison breaks community connections. Um, there are very obvious physical separations, such as physically removing community members and isolating them and locking them up, usually in jails or prisons that are far away from one's communities. Um, and so there's a very physical separation and breakage from community. Uh, in addition to that, um, often prisons are require uh, expensive phone calls that are privatized, um, and in California, it can range as far as $17 for a 15-minute phone call to call a loved one who is incarcerated. And then additionally, uh, the system um, for re-entry there lacks emotional and mental health supports and economic supports. Um, and then other forms of more kind of mass re-entry systems uh, are a size one fits all solution um, that don't work for everyone, don't work for every type of person uh, or background. And so uh, doesn't meet an individual's complex set of needs and aspirations that they are, that they want to achieve when they're coming home. So again, we see that there's a system that sets up to reproduce harm and disconnection, which is why today with Danielle, we're going to talk about what alternatives could look like to that system, what it means to bring in community connections that are so vital to healing and to ultimately really creating community safety. 
so I'm excited to talk to Danielle about more about what our organization does, the types of services they provide that are really rooted in the community um, for people who have justice impacted backgrounds. Uh, so like I mentioned, Danielle is the founder and executive director of United Nation, and they provide housing and economic stability wraparound services uh, to both individuals who are formerly incarcerated and including youth development programs for prevention. Uh, she is justice impacted herself and has witnessed uh, family members impacted by the justice system. Um, and she's a strong advocate of justice reform in South LA. So Danielle, I wanted to start our conversation off with why community advocates like yourself got involved in championing a care first approach and really what care first means to you when it comes to re-envisioning a justice system. Okay, um, thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, I think it's, I just wanted to start with how important it is um, for justice involved and justice impacted individuals to lead the work in our communities. And um, that's how I got started. And that's how, you know, United Nation was founded. Um, I'm from the community. I'm from South Los Angeles, born and raised. And like, just my thing is making sure that people like me are involved in this work and leading this work. And so um, that's really like the start of a care first um, model. Um, and then, so to answer your question, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so that's biblical, um, 1 Timothy 6.10. So a care first approach means putting love of people over the love of money or love over money. Um, the love of money has a negative impact and causes systemic racism and oppression, which leads to mass incarceration, education, inequality, poverty, illness, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And the love of people has a very, very positive impact on people and communities. Through love, we create safe housing like Nehemiah House at United Nation, equality in living, education, and food. And we have healing justice, advocacy, green environments, and healthy living. So with love, we have more peace and better environments, better communities. And with um, the love of money, we create environments that cause people to strive for wealth or strive for money over striving for what's better for our communities and better for each other. I love that it's centered on, on love and, and really that's kind of the center and the focus of building community-based services. And, you know, and I think, I think that's why we see such an effectiveness or why it resonates with so many people as, as being a transformative uh, justice space. And that's the space we should be moving into, right? Um, filling spaces with love when real harm is caused um, instead of uh, a costly system uh, that certain people profit off of um, that, you know, don't provide any of that space or that healing. Right. Um, so I, I appreciate that. Can you tell us a bit about um, uh, your involvement in the advocacy space and kind of what that looked like uh, when you were first getting involved uh, with kind of Measure J or a Care First vision? Um, I started in advocacy, I guess, in, well, really when I was like eight years old, but 
I think really getting into community advocacy and finding out what it really is started in about 2014 um, with neighborhood councils. And then I learned more about different people in our community and how things are done. And that was like a growth process for me. Like I was learning so much, but then with my experience, I was able to create the change that I wanted to see within my community um, and also be that change that I want to see in my community. Um, and so then I started uh, with um, Reimagine LA, well, first Measure J, and then um, I started with Reimagine LA, um, really kind of just sending in the letters that were asked uh, to be sent to our elected officials, also posting on social media and just kind of getting the word out about what's going on and how there are millions of dollars uh, within our uh, in our local um, government that we need to have in our community. And so something that really got me to want to be involved in that is that we needed to make sure that money actually came to people like me, came to people um, that are in our community, that are from our community, that are doing this work that a lot of people are not you know, they're not getting paid to do this work. They're doing this work for free. Um, they're spending, they're having a regular job. I know at a time where I was the same way, I had a job, a full-time job, plus I was doing this type of advocacy. So we're doing a lot in our community to make sure that our communities are better um, for us. And so I got involved in Reimagine LA to say that money should come to community-based organizations that are founded by community members that are led by community members and that um, are led by community members who have experience with um, justice involvement, who have experience, whose family members. My dad was incarcerated most of my life. He was a Vietnam veteran who suffered PTSD, who, um, who instead of receiving resources, he was put in jail um, because of the PTSD and because he, um, you know, suffer from a drug addiction. So he never received help from our country. Um, and so for me, I fight for the people that, that like me, kids who grew up without those resources, but deserve those resources. Um, and then I fight for my sons who are two black boys who are now growing up in this system that I don't want um, to, you know, have a negative impact on them. So for me, being involved in Reimagine LA and being involved in advocacy means so much because, you know, that love of myself, that love of my sons, that love of my community um, is important to see that prosper in a positive way instead of a negative way. I know like, you know, some people, they just see dollar signs. They're like, oh, I'm going to help homeless just because I want to make money or I'm going to, which I don't even <laughs> understand that concept. Um, or they want to do things for money, or we have this incarceration system that um, enslaves our community, right? Because slavery is really not over. It's just redesigned and it's renamed to the prison system. Um, and so a lot of our young people are being placed in prison, um, then being taught and given certain skills to um, build this incarceration system, to build money for the wealthy so that they can continue to get rich. And so it's really our job to make sure that that system stops and that this money funnels into our community, but it funnels through us into our community because that's how we circulate the wealth in our community. And that's how we build to have better communities um, built by us and for us. Right, I wanna highlight some of the things amazing. First of all, thank you for sharing your personal story. It's always really powerful to hear. 
Um, I know I've heard it a couple times and it's it never loses its power, I think, when each time I hear it. So thank you, Danielle, for that. Yeah. And the second thing I really want to highlight that you said, right, is um, really kind of this concept of, of those who are impacted the most should be the drivers of change, should be like, and I think often the phrase that's used is like, those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Right. Uh, right. And I think that's what's happening here. That's what's happening with organizations like United Nation, with leaders like yourself. Um, and you are a phenomenal leader in your community and you're not alone. And that's what I think the collective power is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, with the advocacy that it's people who have been impacted by this, who understand the inequities, the injustice right. um, that plays out here and, and are really transforming that to, to build truly a different world starting kind of right here in our own community. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to shift a little to uh, talking more about your organization and kind of like taking that vision, taking the advocacy you did, right? Uh, for, I guess, for our listeners, something that Danielle mentioned is that CFCI, a big thing that they did, communities first, uh, or care first, community investment, Right. Like Danielle mentioned, it's really realigning our morals through how our local government spends our money right. and really earmarking certain funds that we know are incredibly critical. Mental health, housing, um, substance use. Uh, I think I saw in the budget yesterday a doula program to address like black maternal health. Um, really realigning our budgets to be reflective of what our communities need. Um, and so and then having those funds go to community-based organizations like the one Danielle runs. Um, so I guess shifting a little bit into that and the types of organizations that, you know, really should be leading this work. Um, can you tell us a bit kind of about United Nations model um, and, and why it's different than maybe like a mass uh, model of a transitional living or emergency uh, housing? Like, why is it so important to keep it at the community-based level? Um, yeah, and like, what makes United Nations model unique? Okay, so many things went through my mind while you were asking that question. Um, and thank you for that question. So I believe we are different and I guess it goes back to the same thing is because I'm from the community. I relate to the people that I work with. A lot of the stories they tell me, it's like hearing my own story all over again. Um, and so I'm able to help people through a lot of the things that they're going through because I've been through those things um, in different ways in different places in my life and just continue to overcome challenges, even though I'm an executive director and I'm in this role and I'm and people, I don't know, people may see me differently, but I'm literally still fighting these, these battles, right? Still fighting, even in my own life, even in my personal life, just really, you know, I'm still in South LA. I live here, like I'm a recent homeowner. I guess not that recent, but you know, a little bit recent. And so, and these things I'm doing for the first time, I don't have an example. I don't have someone to say, hey, this is how you do this. It's like, I'm literally learning and going step-by-step um, through a lot of things that I'm doing. And so for me, that's why I feel like I'm different. And that's why funding and utilizing organizations like mine as the leaders in this work are so important because the people that we're helping, we're literally going through those things with them. 
Um, and that's kind of how that mentorship role comes in. And that's how um, the leadership comes in. And we're not looking down on our clients or feeling sorry for our clients, but we're uplifting our clients. We're motivating our clients. And we're saying like, you know, we can do this and we can do this together. And I think that that is so important to our clients um, because then they come to us, right? And they tell us what's going on. And because they're, they, they have a safe space to be more open with us about the challenges they face because they know we face those same challenges. Um, so yeah, so I, that's something that I really believe like that's what makes us different. Um, also because like, you know, I'm from South LA and I don't mention like, I'm from, you know, the jungles, Baldwin Village, uh, community. Um, and so I'm explaining know, that a bit more for listeners who so, might be familiar. Okay. Yeah. So Bowen village now that's what they call it, but it's the jungles. Um, it's a community in South Los Angeles. That's really in between like Baldwin Hills, Lamert park, these like wealthier communities. And it's actually, you know, it's, it's a community of like apartments and community members. Um, it has, um, it's known for, I guess it's a gang, but there's so much more in that community that a lot of people don't know about, but um, me moving there, um, I think I got to see so much. It's a lower income community, um, but the people there, you know, have really, really great connections with each other. It's like a family center community. However, there's a, a high volume of police, right? There's a high volume of incarceration. There's a high volume of um, ticketing, um, harassment, um, crime, different things that are there, uh, along with, you know, like I say, it's a family-centered environment. Um, so, you know, my first year in college, there was a, um, this is what keeps me going too. It's like, there was a, a kid. Um, and when I went to college, I had found out that he had got shot and he died and he was a kid, right? And so his name was Marcel. And that sticks with me every day. He was, you know, we always dance, you know, like we were dancers when we were younger, he was a dancer. Um, and so knowing that someone came into our community and killed this kid, it always affected me to where I always want to fight for our community, especially our black boys, our black men, because um, they're not receiving the resources that they need. Um, and, and through his death, it really, it inspires me. You know, it's like, we cannot leave our black men behind, our black boys, because they need they need so much from our communities. And so that again is why I believe that um, my organization is different. And um, and I'll talk about that, you know, a little bit more, I guess, in one of our other questions. But that's something that you know it really inspires me to say like we need to do more in our communities, and we need to lead that change because we're experiencing these things daily. Yeah, and I think I think that's what makes your organization and then this whole model and approach to community-based services unique, right? Because you know that particular neighborhood so well, right? The same way that somebody else who might be running a community-based organization in Boyle Heights knows their particular neighborhood so well. Same thing with like out in Lancaster, you know, all, all these very similar trends but then with very um, specific fabrics and ecosystems. And so being able to keep those models really rooted, like you said, knowing the people, the people that are there um, and not just uh, getting to know them, but having known them and having kind of generational um, impact and, and, and leverage in, in that community and relationships. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's incredibly important um, about why why it is unique and why then these models for keeping them very community-based is, is unique and, and transformative at the end of the day. Right. Um, so I guess uh, moving into, um, you know, how does United Nation approach? Like you guys do all these different services, housing, economic stability, mental health, leadership development. Uh, how does your organization approach, uh, you know, doing uh, economic stability for the people that come through your program? Um, I would like to say that's about housing first, right? So we want, before we didn't have housing and I worked with youth in Dorsey High School and a lot of my students were homeless. Their families were homeless. They didn't have food, like certain things that I was like, oh my God, like, you know, and I wanted, I started helping them connect to these resources. Like, okay, how can I get someone in housing? How can I get someone in, you know, connect? I was able to get someone, you know, connected to section eight. Um, and so that's what really led me. And I worked in re-entry, right? I worked in the um, juvenile halls. I worked in the camps. So, and I was directly with the youth inside of incarceration. And then I worked with them as they returned into community. And I also worked with them while they were in school. So I had all this, you know, different ways of working with our community. Um, but I just realized like even our ones who were coming from incarceration, they didn't, they were not able to connect to housing or some of them couldn't go home, right? They may have had a family with housing, but they were not allowed to go there because our government created these barriers that said they couldn't go home. Um, and so I, that's what led me to start our housing facility. It's Are you talking a little bit about like violating probation or parole? Like do you yes. mind explaining that a little bit about why they can't go home? Okay. Yeah. So yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So them violating probation or the person um, that they committed a, a, may have committed a crime with lives in that house or um, just the environment, let's say the gang injunctions, or you can't be within a certain um, area with another gang member, just so many different reasons that keep that person, or if they have section eight, then you cannot live there because they they didn't allow people who had a criminal background to live in a section eight unit or someone who had um what is it they had subsidized housing you couldn't live there so there's so many different reasons that make it and create these barriers for people to be able you know that they couldn't go home and so just finding housing for these people um finding housing for our community members um became a bit of a challenge um, and so that's how I started Nehemiah House, because I wanted to house our community first and then provide the services they need to succeed, like mental health services, um, job readiness, life skills, um, healthy eating and living, um, just how to be an overall like great person within yourself. And then also, you know, bringing that into your social environment. Thank you for out. This wasn't even one of our planned questions, but thank you for outlining like why one, the barriers that people face for being able to go home, but also like how we continue to criminalize people for a right. simple act of trying to go home. Right. Um, and, and how that right a, a system, a carceral system, system of incarceration continues to follow people even after a traditional like jail term or prison term sentence. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for outlining that for, you know, anyone who's listening to this. Um, 
and uh, and how the economic stability really starts with providing housing, right? You need, mm-hmm. I think that's a huge component of this conversation, um, and especially in LA where we have such a homelessness and housing crisis uh, mm-hmm. and cycle revolving door right. between criminalizing homelessness and then uh, almost pushing people who are criminalized into homelessness. Into homelessness. And and then going into like, I didn't mention like poverty, right? The systemic systems of oppression that cause poverty, that cause homelessness, that cause mass incarceration. These systems, they want to cycle our people back into the incarceration system because that's how they keep their money going. Uh, we also have our rent is just too high in LA, you know, and then people don't, there's not enough jobs or the, the income of those jobs are too low um, for people to actually pay rent in, in our communities. So economic stability is really providing that housing, but also our education, our education systems are not equitable. They're not good. And so we really want to advocate and also go into our schools and provide these programs um, 100% of our kids that we provided programs to in um, our school graduated high school um, and then gone on to college and are doing well in life. And so just really providing that that gap for a lot of our people um, so that they can succeed in life is very, very important. So education, food, having quality food, making sure that um, we're giving food, we're a part of making sure that our community has healthy food, has grocery stores within our communities. Um, just so many different things that create that economic stability um, for our community. And then that still goes back to the, the the first thing of love, making sure that we're loving our people enough to provide these resources that they need so that they can be economically stable and then grow into being economically viable within our communities. Yeah, I think that is such an important thing to highlight, right, that there's traditional forms of the ways we think about providing economic stability or mobility um, and and then all the other things that support it that really are economic stability. And so the, what you guys are doing in terms of the housing, that is a huge economic stability. Uh, helping, I know you uh, have linkages to helping people find jobs or writing resumes, right? That is another economic stability. But then the education programs, right? The food programs, those are also components of economic stability and then hopefully mobility from there on. Um, So I have kind of one last question as we wrap up, moving us away from the economic stability part to the more kind of mental health and individual growth uh, and development part. Um, You know, I think a lot of the community-based services also talk about kind of peer support, uh, mental health components, restorative healing. Um, can you tell us a bit about like why mental health and peer support is such a vital service uh, for people coming out of incarceration um, and and how you guys do it in your organization? Um, yeah, so we have a program called Healthy Lifestyle Living. And within that program, we talk, we focus on um, six pillars of health. We added one, but we really focus on six is um, physical, mental, emotional, relational, spiritual, and um, this one. Um, But yes, so, and then social. So we really want to make sure that our community has a holistic health approach. And a lot of that really starts with the foods that we eat. I know I keep mentioning that, but so I guess my background, I'm also an athlete. So I ran track in high school and in college. Um, 
And even when I ran track, I didn't understand the like health as far as what you eat and how important that is. Um, and then within our communities, we have fast food restaurants everywhere. We have 7-Elevens. We have, you know, all these things that provide us with quick food. Um, but it's so important that we put the right foods into our bodies because that also affects our mental health. So sugar, I know a lot of people focus on drugs and alcohol, but we don't focus on the fact that we're consuming so much sugar within our community. So really starting what I do within my program is really start with what are you eating and how can we change that? Um, and, and we did programs on that, right? Teaching them about what sugar is and how it affects you in such a negative way, how drinking and eating fruit and how that affects your mind and, and really bringing that to my clients. They were just, you know, they were kind of blown away by how drinking a glass of fruit uh, juice, natural fruit juice, fresh fruit juice, or um, juiced, um, changed the way their mindset and opened up their mind in such a different way. Um, and so really bringing that into our community is just really, really important. Um, and the mental health aspect of our community, like people don't understand. I think like we have this thing of like, somehow people just became mentally ill, right? We're just like, one day we were all fine. And then the next day they just people were mentally ill. And I think we have to go away from that and really talk about what is causing the mental illness within our communities. There's a cause, right? The high rent, people overworking themselves, um, people not having green space and healthy environments, food that we eat. So many things that are happening to, even starting with our children, they're growing up in these environments, trauma, um, just all these things, uh, parenting skills, so many things that go into um, creating an adult, right? And then by the time they become grownups, living in the same system, the same cycle of, um, again, now they have to pay rent. They have to go through all these things and no one actually teaching how do we live in a healthy way and what do we need in our communities, in our environment to create this health and mental health that we need, this mental stability. Also just talking about our emotions and what we're experiencing and how you do that. Like a lot of us don't even know how, like, how do I talk about that? Um, what does that feel like? Um, just even like within myself learning different feelings. I'm like, what was that feeling like? And just really sitting with that and saying, okay, well, this is what I felt in that moment. Um, and teaching that to our clients is so important and just relearning life, relearning how we live, relearning how we do things is so important, but that's within ourselves, but there's also this, this system, right, that we have to change that is continuing, continuing to cause people to have mental illnesses and mental breaks. And we have to change that community. And that's with the care first uh, approach is making sure that these resources are coming into our community, which is, um, just things that are making us more healthy in our community um, and providing these resources, they can circulate within our community. That's funding, that's food, that's housing, making sure that the rent is not increasing, that our, that people are able to afford to buy homes within our community. We have so many corporations and different people coming in and buying up the housing. So a lot of people can't even get you know, their first home or single, single family houses um because of this and then when they're buying them they're raising the rent prices in our community so there's so many things that are happening that are affecting our mental health and i think we have to talk about that not just okay homelessness how do we fix homelessness how do we fix mental health mental health 
But we need to talk about what are the underlying issues that are impacting people that are causing homelessness? What are the underlying issues that are impacting people that are causing mental um, mental illness? And then we need to change those things, not just saying, oh, there are people on the street that are homeless. You know, what do we do with them? But how do we prevent homelessness? How do we prevent mental health? And then how do we also help the people that are experiencing those things right now? And how do we make those changes? So to me, that's that's really important is creating this cycle of change, not just what do they call it? Bandaging, ba putting a band. A bandage <laughs> solution. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's really addressing the root of the problem. And um, I love the way that you are phrasing kind of the conversation of mental health around not being an individualistic issue, right? But being a systemic issue, really kind of talking about breaking um, generational cycles of, of trauma. Right. Um, and and also really the systemic injustices that have caused that trauma, right? And so addressing both how do we break from that within our own mental health, but then also how do we go beyond that to address like this this is a systemic issue that has created this. Um, so I think that's really important. I guess my last question within that is why is it so important? Do you think within this kind of movement to transform a justice system, to reimagine it, for those services to be decentralized, right? I think in U.S. history, we've seen kind of like a centralized mental health institution, right? And sometimes they can really replicate really? carceral systems. So yeah. why is it so important for that to be decentralized in a way? Right. Um, it's very important for that to be decentralized. Because like you said, it is it, it, it's in a different way of an incarceration system or the fact that you may lock a person in a room and you may get them to a certain place of mental health or um, getting off of drugs. But that person still has to go back into the real world. They still have to go back home. So it's better to create better environments for people to live in, um, creating better schools creating better um, places of employment that understand the needs of people. Um, you know, speaking of that as just being a mom, right? And saying, hey, I can't be here right now. I have to go take care of my children. I have to go pick up my children from school. Those types of things cause mental stress on people. So just making sure that our work environments understand our home environments and also making sure that, yeah, our communities are safe spaces for people to have um, the mental health that they need, making sure that we have trees, making sure that we have, you know, walkable, livable environments so that people can thrive in. Also housing um, facilities like Nehemiah House um, with United Nation, making sure that those housing facilities are in different places within our community, not all in one spot, but in different places within our communities. And they're led by us and that we are giving them these resources in real time, in the real world, and then helping them to succeed in life to where they are now having their own house or apartment or living facility. And then they're growing um, and, and like you said, breaking those generational uh, curses or generational traumas and living in a positive way. So that's really what we want to do is just break from the old ways of doing things and create this new way, right? Being the change we want to see in the world. And that's what we really have to do. 
right. Well, that was my last question. I um, think we ended on a on a good note of really being that change and, and leading that change. And again, I think a big theme of of our conversation of community-based services and why it's so important to have them rooted in the community in a decentralized way, led by people from the communities, right, is again, this theme of like those closest to the pain, those who understand the pain the most closest to the power. And so I think, Danielle, you are an example of someone who really understands um, the struggles of your community and as a collective is an incredibly powerful nonprofit, uh, elite community leader. Um, and so I'm excited to see that obviously in yourself and in your community, but all across uh, the city and all across the county. Um, so that is the end of our conversation with Danielle. And so Danielle, again, thank you so much for your leadership and all the insight you provided with us today. Thank you, Wendy, for um, having me here and speaking to me. Um, and thank you to Liz, you know, being a part of the Incubation Academy has really, you know, helped me to grow so much. Um, so I'm really, you know, I really appreciate the resources that I'm receiving. And I really want to, you know, hope that I can continue to create this change in the community. If you'd like to learn more about how we support place-based initiatives for housing, economic development, and alternatives to incarceration at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.lisc.org slash Los Angeles and follow us on Twitter at LISC underscore LA. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Ronald Hampton, founder of Growing Greatness Now. Growing Greatness Now is a consulting firm committed to social and environmental.